Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. When Qatari Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed Abdulrahman Al Thani this week described the Taliban's repressive policies towards women and brutal administration of justice as very disappointing and taking Afghanistan a step backwards. He was doing more than holding Qatar up as a model of Islamic governance and offering the militants cover to moderate their ways. Sheikh Althani was seeking to shield the Gulf state from criticism should Qatari efforts fail to persuade the Taliban to shave off the sharp edges that marked their rule 25 years ago before they were toppled by U.S. military forces and characterized their governments since they took control of Afghanistan in mid-August with the U.S. withdrawal. The minister was implicitly referring to the Taliban's refusal to allow Afghan female secondary students to resume their studies, two weeks after schools opened for boys, and the hanging of a bloody corpse of a man accused of kidnapping on a crane in the main square of the western Afghan city of Herat. Elsewhere in the city, three other men were also strung up for public viewing. Sheikh Althani's effort to position his country as a model of Islamic governance amounted to a bid to both offer the Taliban an alternative and garner brownie points in a competition with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for religious soft power in the Muslim world and international recognition as an icon of an autocratic yet moderate interpretation of Islam. Sheikh Althani's remarks constituted his first sharp rebuke of the Taliban and have gone further than statements issued by the Kingdom and the Emirates that so far primarily urged the group to ensure regional security and stability. We have been trying to demonstrate for the Taliban how Muslim countries can conduct their laws, how they can com- deal with the women's issues, Sheikh Althani said. One of the examples is the state of Qatar, which is a Muslim country. Our system is an Islamic system, but we have women outnumbering men in workforces, in government, and in higher education. The minister warned that the Taliban risked misusing Sharia or Islamic law. Against the backdrop of the rivalry, the stakes are higher for Qatar's religious soft power rivals to be seen as distancing and differentiating themselves from the Taliban. To be sure, the UAE competes with Qatar in having made significant progress on women's rights, while Saudi Arabia has substantially enhanced women's professional and social opportunities since the rise of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Yet Saudi Arabia and the UAE were alongside Pakistan, the only three countries to recognize the first Taliban government in 1996. Saudi Arabia, moreover, together with the United States, created the Taliban's cradle by funding and arming the Mujahideen who forced the Soviets to withdraw from Afghanistan in the late 1980s. In the name of common decency, as well as political expediency, the Gulf states must exert their maximum leverage, whether financial, political, or moral, on the Taliban to dissuade them from reimposing the barbarous regime of 20 years ago. Through their financial support of the Mujahideen, 
The Gulf has been inextricably linked with Afghanistan from the beginning of its troubles in the 1980s and owns what happens now, said former U.S. Ambassador to Qatar, Patrick Theros. While the same could be said about the United States, Mr. Theros's remarks appeared to include a dig at Saudi Arabia and the UAE, despite an agreement in January to end a three-and-a-half-year-long diplomatic and economic boycott of Qatar, led by the Kingdom and the Emirates. To be fair, Mr. Cyrus buffered his criticism of Gulf states by noting that they needed to bury their differences to confront the threat posed by Iran. Mr. Theros is a strategic advisor for the Washington-based Gulf International Forum, a Qatar-linked think tank, launched in 2018, days after the U.S.-Qatar Strategic Dialogue, an annual series of bilateral meetings between high-level U.S. and Qatari officials was inaugurated. Former Saudi intelligence chief Prince Turki al-Faisal, in a bid to distance Saudi Arabia from the Taliban, recently distinguished Wahhabism, the king kingdom's ultra-conservative strand of Islam, and Diobandism, another ultra-conservative interpretation of the faith that originated in, the in India and constitutes the theological wellspring of the Taliban. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed's social reforms have shaved off sharp edges of Wahhabi practices, but have not involved attempts to tinker with Islamic jurisprudence that justified them. Likewise, decades of Saudi theological influence and funding shaped the evolution of Diobandism in Afghanistan as well as Pakistan. Media reports suggested that Prince Turkey secretly met ta Taliban leaders in August. Prince Turkey reportedly seemingly unsuccessfully sought to convince the group to moderate its policies and put flesh on the notion of a changed Taliban 2.0. As head of Saudi intelligence from 1979 to 2001, Prince Turkey dealt with the Mujahideen during the war against the Soviets and sought to persuade the Taliban to hand over Osama bin Laden after Al-Qaeda bombed U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. The need to distance Islam as practiced in conservative Gulf states from the Taliban's interpretation of the faith takes on added significance amid doubts about U.S. reliability reinforced by the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the United States' rejiggering of its commitments to guaranteeing security in the region. It is where religious soft power meets defense and security policy in a court of public opinion that may not delve into the nuanced differences between Wahhabism and Diobandism. The unsavory reputation of Gulf regime's human rights practices has lessened the American public's appetite for committing troops to their defense over the past decade. The Gulf states must come to grips with the possibility that the U.S. willingness to fight Iran in their defense has significantly declined and may well disappear over the coming years. If the intellectual and political elite of the region do not start thinking about how to manage the future, it will turn and bite them, Mr. Theros said. Most immediately, Saudi Arabia fears that Houthi rebels in Yemen may take a page out of the Taliban playbook and fight the war in Yemen till victory, while paying only lip service 
to a negotiated end to the war. U.S. President Joe Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, met on Monday in the kingdom with Prince Mohammed to discuss the six-and-a-half-year-old Saudi intervention in Yemen. It was the first encounter between a senior official of the Biden administration and the Crown Prince, whose image has been severely tarnished by the 2018 killing in Istanbul of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.